Well, this morning, um, we have uh, Rose Brower Young, our district superintendent uh, for the what we call the Canada West District. Canada West District um, is Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And there are a number of churches and ministries across this district. And um, Rose Brower Young uh, is the district superintendent who oversees all of those. She graduated from Canadian Nazarene College with a Bachelor of Theology degree in 1990. Did you forget? Okay, that is the date. Okay. She also attended the University of Manitoba studying English and religion, which I didn't know. Uh, and she currently is completing a master's degree in Christian leadership. Um, she has pastored on this district since the 1990s at least. And uh, while pastoring in Olds, Alberta, she and her husband Kelly had launched a ministry called Kittstown, which actually has gone uh, far beyond Calgary and is international in scope uh, and continues to this day. Um, but after pastoring together for many years, and doing Kids Town on the side, they had decided in 2004 to do Kids Town full-time and leave the local church ministry. Um, shortly after, in the summer of 2004, Kelly died of a heart attack at the age of 36, leaving behind Rose and their two children. Rayleigh and Brock, their two children, are now adults and both serving the Lord. No grandchildren? Any on the way? I know. Bad joke. But Rayleigh is engaged. And uh, in 2008, November 22nd, November 22nd, two days ago, you celebrated your anniversary to Brad. She's now married to Brad Young. Brad, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Wow. So that was your 11th anniversary. Okay. All right. Um, Rose was elected as district superintendent on June 23rd, 2018. She is passionate for the church and health, uh, for the growth and health of God's church, uh, particularly across this district, and is mobilizing our district towards church renewal. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Rose uh, come and speak to us today. So let's give her another warm First Church welcome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Pastor Brian. Uh, we had the honor of working alongside Brian and Colleen back in the days of New Life Fellowship. And he took a chance on a young couple, and we appreciate it. And I um, value his friendship to this day. Well, it's an honor to join with you here in worship and in prayer. And uh, thank you for your leadership, Steve, as we gather together in worship. It's nice to come away from all the stuff in the week and just gather together. And I appreciate... Uh, the spirit uh, that with which he had given us uh, to come into worship today. Um, may God be given the freedom to speak to each one of us this morning. Well, the last few weeks, we've been looking closely here at the book in the Bible known as Philippians. And perhaps I should just turn off my ear. No? Okay, I'll keep going. Let me begin by telling you that the book of Philippians and I go way back. As I was beginning grade 10, my dad had moved our family from the little town of Coronation, which had about 1,500 people, one paved road. We moved to the grand metropolis of Three Hills, which had lots of paved roads and about 3,500 people. And they also had their own Christian school and a Bible school there. 
and we had got to or the privilege of attending these schools. Well, life changed real fast and real hard for my siblings and myself. Our public school system had not prepared us for the change of Prairie Bible College, but we managed. And one of the lessons that I later came to appreciate was Bible memorization. Now, Mr. Scott was my Bible teacher, and he challenged us to memorize the entire book of Philippians. Can you believe it? Take a look at that thing in your Bibles. There's more than two pages, right? It actually wasn't too bad. There's only 106 verses. You could get a whole week free at kids camp if you did that, right? And it was quite manageable. Now, the stories you hear of Bible memory work are true. High school was a long time ago for me, and yet there are times in conversations or in a song or in a message when a verse from this very book of Philippians comes to mind. You see, God speaks to us through his word, and so it's a real privilege and a responsibility that you and I have to be able to access it. I deeply respect your pastor, Brian Roller, and I know that he engages in Bible memorization. And so I encourage you, if you haven't already, to start learning. We all know our phone numbers. We know how to get home. We often know our grocery list. We know how to memorize. And so it's a, just a discipline that we need to do to begin to memorize from the scripture. Well, this morning we want to look specifically at the first chapter in Philippians, verses 27 through 30. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we're also going to be sharing the scriptures on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, I'd invite you to leave a note for the office on one of those communication cards because we would love to give you your very own copy of the Bible. We think everybody should have a copy of the scriptures. Well, up to this point in his letter, the Apostle Paul has been informing the church at Philippi concerning his situation. And what was the situation? Prison, wasn't it? Uncertainty about his future. And yet we have seen throughout this that the Apostle Paul's attitude was one of joy and confidence. And now beginning with verse 27, Paul begins a series of practical appeals or exhortations concerning the Christian life. Do you want to know how to live a life well? The first exhortation found in verses 27 through 30 could be called walking consistently. That is the first thing that we can do to live our lives well, is to walk consistently. Look at Philippians chapter 1, 27a. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now I want to remind us that the New Testament we see today was not always written in English, correct? Originally, it was written in the Greek language. And so I want us to take just a quick look at what this verse might say for us in the original language. And in the Greek, the word conduct literally means to behave as citizens. And it was no accident, I don't think, when Paul chose that word conduct, where the primary meaning was to live as a citizen or to discharge one's obligations as a citizen. And that's what he used to communicate to this Philippian church. You see, Paul was drawing from something that he knew very well the Philippians were um, uh, very proud of, just to make a spiritual point. You see, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and most of its citizens were actually transplanted citizens of Rome, retired soldiers who'd been encouraged to settle there. 
And so even though they were living in the city of Philippi, they were expected to still behave as if they were citizens of Rome. And so these people, they knew all the rights of being a Roman citizen. They also knew all the responsibilities, and they definitely knew their privileges of being part of the Roman Empire. And so I got to thinking, how do citizens of Canada behave? Well, we're doing good at welcoming all people to be a part of our shores, aren't we? That's what we do. We seem to do it well. What else do we do as Canadians? Oh, yes. We play hockey and we drink Tim's coffee, a lot of it. That's how Canadians behave. What else do we do? Very polite. We say sorry a lot. And another thing that I was thinking we do as Canadians is we play well together, don't we? Everyone comes along, we get along so well, we're unified, and of course we have the RCMP, something we're very proud of. Well, Paul applies um, all of this to a, in a spiritual way to the Philippians. And you and I, we know how to behave in Canada, and the Philippians certainly knew what it meant to behave as a citizen of Rome. It was a prestigious thing for them to be of Rome, do you remember when Paul was beaten and the people who beat him realized he was a Roman citizen? They got a little worried, didn't they? Because that's not how we treat other Roman citizens. And so Paul's applying this term conduct or behave as a citizen to the life of a Christian. And truthfully, when we become a disciple of Christ, we are no longer a part of this kingdom. We belong to a new kingdom. And our citizenship is actually in the heavenly kingdom. So even though we may live on earth here, we are to behave as citizens of heaven. There are privileges, responsibilities, and rights of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so as citizens of another kingdom, friends, we need to first of all stand firm. Our behavior as citizens is to be worthy of the gospel. Now what did verse 27 say again? Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is implying to us then that maybe there is a behavior that is not worthy of the gospel. Doesn't it? And to act unworthy of the gospel would bring shame upon the gospel. Do you remember in November 2018, a news story broke out about a young Canadian woman who actually happened to be Albertan, who was arrested in northern Thailand for spray painting on the ancient walls of a gate in Thailand. Do you remember that? It was a 13th century structure. And she and her friend from Britain were charged with vandalizing this ancient artifact, and they faced a maximum of 10 years in prison and a fine equivalent to about $40,000. Do you remember that story? And they showed this picture, and there she was having to scrub off on the wall, all that stuff. Well, as a Canadian, I was embarrassed when that story hit the news. And I wonder if all the other Canadian tourists who happened to be in Thailand at the time maybe turned their maple leaf shirts inside out or probably said sorry a dozen times, I don't know. But just as a Canadian citizen who misbehaves in a foreign country sheds a bad reflection on his or her home country, the Apostle Peter uh, wants us to remember the importance of proper conduct as we journey in a country that is not our own. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Dear friends, 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, if we are not behaving as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, then the only alternative is behaving in an unworthy manner. Now, you and I know what kind of conduct is unbecoming of a Canadian. Do we know what kind of conduct is unworthy of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? You see, conduct deals more with walk than talk. The most powerful method of evangelism that I know of with an unbeliever is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book that I can give them or taken to a conference with lots of music and great speakers. It's a consistent life and walk of a believer. Now even further, our behavior as citizens is to be worthy with or without the presence of other Christians. So not only do we stand firm, but you and I, we need to be standing strong. Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. You see, note that Paul said, whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent. You see, Paul evidently did not want their faith to be simply what one commentator called an environmental faith. Well, what's an environmental faith? Well, it's a faith that would be totally dependent on your environment. In other words, we can remain faithful as long as we're under the influence of our parents, our church, our Christian college. But take that person out of such an environment and their faith is lost. That's what I mean by an environmental faith. What is it like to stand strong and be all alone? What are some signs of environmental faith? Well, maybe we pray in public, but we don't do it in private. Maybe we study the Bible when we're at church or youth group or small group studies, but we don't do it on our own at home. Perhaps there's a lack of personal closeness and a dependence on God and Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is saying here in Philippians that his desire was that the Philippians' behavior as citizens would not be dependent upon his presence with them. He shouldn't have to be holding their hand all the time. And likewise, my friends, our behavior should not be dependent upon the presence of other Christians because the presence of Christ is with you always. So we need to be walking consistently. But secondly, we need to be working cooperatively. There needs to be a oneness in our spirit. You know, behaving as citizens involves standing fast against those kinds of things which could tear us apart. You know, we seek the things of the world in which we live with its immorality and materialism. Or maybe the sin of unbelief, which can strike at even the most mature Christian during crises of doubt. Or the deceitfulness of false doctrines showing great promise. They sound good, they tickle our ears but they ultimately lead us away from Christ. These are the kind of things that we have to stand fast against and be one in spirit. So we're not to stand just strong by ourselves in isolation from one another, but we need to be in unity. 
And that unworthy conduct usually begins when we neglect the blessings and accountability of fellowship and togetherness, doesn't it? This is what unity looks like. Oh, sorry. Wrong picture. Let's try again. There we go. That's how Canadians behave in unity. Mark Mousko, a Christian writer, had commented on this need for unity. Listen up. Particularly among leaders. Particularly amongst our leaders. When you look ahead in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to see that there are two ministers in the Philippian church that did not share the same view on the matter. And their disagreement was bringing disunity into the body of Christ. And Marge observed that whatever was happening amongst church leaders often happens amongst other church members. Even when what is happening amongst the leaders isn't always talked about openly. Isn't that interesting? For example, if your leaders are prayerful, chances are your members are going to be prayerful as well. If your leaders are lazy in ministry, chances are the other members will be lazy in ministry. You see, if your leaders are living it, the church will live it, whether good or bad, spoken or unspoken. And each one of us here this morning are leaders. Somebody is watching you. That's why authentically living and modeling Christian behavior, and not just teaching about it, is so vital. The attitudes and behaviors and habits of a congregation is usually a direct reflection of attitudes, behaviors, and habits of your leaders. And lack of unity has to be one of the most major issues of the church throughout its history. But real unity is more than just holding on to same doctrines or high-fiving each other on Sunday mornings. It's more than just belonging to the same church denomination or falling into line under the black manual. That's not the unity I'm talking about. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, True unity cannot occur unless believers are spiritually united with Jesus Christ and have a genuine knowledge of him. So that includes having an experiential knowledge of Jesus, not just an intellectual one. Now when I was looking at this passage that Pastor Brian had given me, I thought, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. My fear was that we start thinking that there's this list, this legalism that comes about, saying that if you're going to be conducting yourselves, these are the things you have to do or not to do. That's not what we're talking about. When you have an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are walking step by step with the Holy Spirit, He will guide you in your conduct. Unity develops as believers work and serve together, each using their gifts and abilities to encourage and build up our church. And Paul goes on to say that goal of unity can only be reached when believers become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a ways away from the fullness of Christ. Is it any wonder that unity is lacking in our churches? At best, unity is a work in progress, isn't it? Day by day by day. But it's a goal that we should be working for. Now, unity also involves not just a oneness of our spirits, but with one mind striving together for the sake of the gospel. And our conduct is unbecoming of the gospel if we are not striving for the faith of the gospel or we are not doing it in unity with other friends. 
May I gently remind you and challenge you today with this question. Does not a bad attitude destroy unity? You know, criticizing is not a spiritual gift. We're on the same team. Just last Sunday, I was able to be with another of our team members up in High Prairie. There was 31 of them, and we did not have a worship team. We sang from the internet. And I'll tell you, the spirit of worship there was as alive and vibrant as ever. Every day they have uh, potluck after on Sundays. At 2 o'clock, they're still visiting with one another. Those are our team members. And um, they're excited to be together. We are on the same team. Well, the story is told about some missionaries in the Philippines who had set up a croquet game in their front yard. Anybody here not know what croquet is? Raise your hand. My goodness, we might need a tournament. I'll show you what this is. Well, several of these missionaries' neighbors had become interested, and they wanted to join the fun. And so the missionaries explained how the game went, and then started them out, each with their own mallet and a ball. Well, as the game progressed, opportunity came for one of the players to take advantage of another by knocking that person's ball right out of the court. And so a missionary explained the procedure, but his advice to him only puzzled his friend. And the gentleman said, well, why would I want to knock his ball out of the court? And the missionary said, so you're going to be the one who will win. Isn't that exciting? And this little man just shook his head in bewilderment. You see, competition was generally ruled out in a hunting and gathering society where people survive not by competing against one another, but by sharing equally in every activity. So the game of croquet continued, but no one followed the missionary's advice. When a player successfully got through all of the wickets, the game wasn't over for him. He went back and gave advice to all of his fellow players. And as the final player moved toward that wicket, the affair was still very much a team effort. And finally, when the last wicket was played, the team shouted happily, We won! We won! Friends, that's how the church is supposed to be. We're a team. We all win together. How many of us know any Filipino people in Edmonton? If you know, have a Filipino friend there, raise your hand. This could very well be, this picture right here, a significant picture of a moment in history. Last week I met with Pastor Rule, his wife Ruth, and two young believers, Fraser and Christine. And they have a heart for planting a church in Edmonton for Filipinos. Now even before they came to Canada over four years ago, Pastor Rule's church in the Philippines was praying for the new work to be done in Canada. He had pioneered a church there, and that church daughtered two more churches. Since he's been in Canada, all three of those churches have each daughtered another church. And they're still going strong. Those people are praying for us here in Canada. But Pastor Rule and his wife for four years have been praying and waiting. You see, if we're serious about one mind striving together for the sake of the gospel, do you not think it makes sense for us to support and celebrate a group of Christian sisters and brothers who want to do that very thing, and they're already in Edmonton? I'm telling you, none of these people here this morning were with me in High Prairie, but there's a good work being done in there because we're all of a team, and we need to be celebrating and supporting our team there. 
It's important that we come together for the sake of the gospel, that we are unified, that we speak well of one another. And so the good life, which is a life well lived, walking consistently, working cooperatively, and thirdly, we are waging at any cost. Now, waging here means to carry on or to engage in. Christians walking in a manner worthy of the gospel will not be troubled by those people who ridicule us or perhaps even persecute us. For even though the world may consider such fearlessness as crazy, the Bible says that kind of courage is evidence of our salvation. Read Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is something we don't often speak about in our Western culture. This whole idea of suffering as believers. We want to be prosperous and happy and content. But Jesus and the New Testament authors did not shy away from this topic of suffering. And they spoke openly about the reality of suffering and the potential that exists for persecution. And then paradoxically, they associate suffering with joy. The New Testament authors regarded suffering as a privilege because they saw it as a way of identifying and sharing in Christ's suffering. You see, suffering has a way of testing and proving our faith, doesn't it? It refines us, and it makes us become strong and mature and resilient. And really, suffering, as far as I know, is one of the most effective ways to bring about spiritual maturity in Christians. It's not an easy lesson. But if we truly want to become followers of Jesus, and if we are serious about becoming more and more like him, we should not be shy about uh, suffering, but we should be counting it a joy. You know that song, It Is Well With My Soul? It was written by a successful Christian lawyer, Horatio Spafford. And his only son had died at age four in 1871. Well, in 1872, the great Chicago fire wiped out his vast estate, which he had made from his successful legal career. So in 1873, he sent his wife and four daughters over to Europe on a summer trip. But since he had a lot of work to do, he planned to follow them later. The story goes that the ship sank, and he lost his four daughters, with the wife being the only survivor. She sent him a famous telegram which simply read, Saved Alone. Well, on his return home, like talk about a bad year, you know. His law firm burnt down. And then the insurance company refused to pay him. They said it was an act of God. And so he had no money to pay for his house, no work. So he lost his house. And then while sitting and thinking about all this that was happening to him, being a spiritual person, Horatio wrote a song. Whatever my Lord you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. See, suffering takes many forms. 
Now, a story like Horatio's may not fit well with the gospel that we preach in our Western culture very much. Where was God when Horatio was faithful to him? All those terrible things shouldn't have happened to him. My friends, we often pray for suffering to be taken away. And yet we say, draw me closer to you, Christ. And then when he does that and it comes in the form of suffering, we say, no, I don't want any of that. My friends, when we encounter times of suffering, we do that with joy. <laughs> what a paradox is that? That's why we need one another. That's why we must be on the same team so that we can stand firm and stand strong, walking consistently for the sake of the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42 said this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me ask you this today. Is your conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are we behaving as citizens of heaven while we journey on this earth? If not, could it be that we have forgotten the privileges we enjoy by being citizens in the kingdom of heaven? Well, as we conclude, you may be asking this question today. So what? So what? Why is this so important? And I want to tell you why it's important to me that you recognize to what kingdom you are a citizen. Because what we believe determines what we behave. Or what we believe determines how we behave. Am I conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel? Now, Johnny Hunt wrote a quote, and I just found it in his writings. So I credit him with the, the quote. I don't know if it's actually his uh, personal information, but this is what he said. You were writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the words that you do, the deeds that you do, and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2 says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You see, the best literature in the world is no substitute for your own life. That's why it's important that we practice what we preach, that we behave how we believe. A good life is a life well lived, where the life is walked consistently, it's worked cooperatively, and it's waged at any cost even to the point of suffering. And so I ask you this morning, what do you believe? In what kingdom are you living your life? And as we move into our closing moments, I'd like to ask our worship team to come and play just one verse and a chorus on the instruments before we sing. I want to invite you to, whether you're in your seats or kneeling in a place of surrender there or here at the altar, to spend a few moments listening for God to speak to you. I'd like you to ask him these questions. God, do you see me as a prominent citizen in your kingdom? And secondly, ask him, is there anything unworthy in your life in the way you conduct yourself? 
Does he see you as a citizen in his kingdom? Is there anything unworthy in the way you conduct yourself? Ask him. He'll reveal it to you. And if he says something, repent of it. That the gospel you live will be a shining light to those who are watching. Now maybe you know that you are a citizen of an earthly kingdom and you want to change that. I invite you to come to the altar over here on your right and someone would love to join you in prayer there and help you begin living the good life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your spirit is real and is moving amongst us this morning. God, I invite you to come and speak to us. And I want to commit each woman and man that is present here to you and ask that you would remind us of what kingdom our citizenship lies. We want to be counted as worthy of the gospel. Father, would you forgive us for the ways where our walks have been so inconsistent? Our words and our actions have been less than cooperative with one another and with your spirit. And we have shrunk away from using our sufferings as a way to give you praise. God, I ask that you'd bring freedom here today to those who feel enslaved, that you would bring strength to those who feel weak that you would bring healing where there's been enmity and strife, and that you'd bring fearlessness to those who tend to shrink away. God, may our lives be lived well with you as our center. We want to give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen.